The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, we need to get into our study in 1 John. So before we get started, let's bow our heads together with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity this morning to come together as a body of believers to study your word and to be challenged by the doctrine that's here. Father, we pray for the missionaries that we support going out from Preston City Bible Church. We pray for the Kibbies as they are relaxing now and recovering their strength during this year of sabbatical. We also pray for Jim and Phyllis Myers as they are traveling down through uh central part of the U.S., wrapping up their uh, tour of support churches on this trip and preparing to return to Kiev. Father, we pray for George Mueller. We pray for Ralph LaRosa, these men who have dedicated themselves to teaching doctrine in foreign lands. We pray that you would continue to strengthen them, support them, provide for their physical needs, and, and encourage them with doctrine that they might uh, run the course and stay the course and communicate the word to people who are desperately in need of doctrine. Father, we pray for us today as we come face to face with the mirror of your word that we would not uh, turn away from it, but that we would look at it honestly and objectively and be willing to uh, exchange the human viewpoint it reveals, the human viewpoint in our own souls with the divine viewpoint of your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We continue our study in 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 4, and last time we began this next paragraph in verse 7. I remind you that John's typical style is to interweave various themes together as he builds line upon line and precept upon precept through his uh, epistle. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, John reiterates, he returns the command to the command to to love, to subject the doctrine of uh, impersonal love, not just for all mankind, but we could say that there is, in terms of our of our uh, stress busters, let's expand this a little bit. We have the category of impersonal love, and you have category one impersonal love is to all mankind. This is the principle from uh, Leviticus chapter 18 that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But then in John 13, 34, and 35, we have an expansion of that command, and that is that as believers, we are to love one another. 
And this goes far beyond the first command to love all mankind, because in that command we, we were to love your neighbor as yourself. So the object of love was anyone, believer or unbeliever, and the model was as you love yourself. But in the New Testament for the church age believer, the standard is no longer uh, as you love yourself. The standard is as Jesus Christ loved you. Jesus said we are to love one another as I have loved you. So the standard changes. The standard intensifies to the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. And the command is not just to unbelievers, but specifically directed to other believers. Now, we all know that that not every believer is lovable, so this is not a love that is based upon the attractiveness of the object. It's not a love that's based on the wonderful personality and kindness and uh, of the object because there are believers that are obnoxious. There are believers that are operating on their sin nature and are carnal, and uh, we don't want to be around them, much less to have to be kind or generous or gracious to them. So this is obviously a love that cannot be generated on our own. And if we try to generate this on our own, it just produces hypocrisy because sooner or later it's going to fall apart. It is a love that can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit, and that's why it is one of the uh, and listed first among the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, 21 and 22. Now here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, which we covered last time, Paul addresses his readers as beloved, agapetoi. And by using that term, he addresses them as believers. Now, every now and then I take it, I get out a, a, another translation or different translations of the English just to kind of see what translators do with this stuff. And uh, one of the newer Bibles that has come out this last year is called the New English Translation, the NET Bible, and a couple of you have asked me about it, seen it on the Internet. And one of the things that is good about the Bible is if you are technically trained in Greek or Hebrew, they have uh, columns and columns of very helpful translator notes. They're helpful not because they reach the right conclusions, but because they, they uh, indicate where problems might be. Nine times out of ten, I disagree with their conclusions and the way they translate things, but it's always nice to know where they, where a problem or a certain issue in the Greek text is, uh, is apparent. And I was appalled this morning when I read that and it translated agapetoi as friends. See, when you have such an English translation as friends, that, that destroys that, or you completely lose that sense that this is um, uh, this could be uh, ju- that this is just believers, friends. It could be believers or unbelievers or whatever. Just completely loses that, and they have a no- number of other theological problems. But um, what really what really saddens me is when I look at that and I got a list of who the translators were. And the New Testament is translated mostly by the New Testament Greek department at Dallas Seminary, which shows that they're somewhat losing their uh, edge, uh, uh, previous generations probably rolling over in their grave. Now, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from the ultimate source of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
As we get into this, we, I want to review a couple of concepts. The key mandate here to love one another is a major theme in John's epistle. In fact, John is going to correlate loving one another with reaching spiritual maturity and with knowing God. So he connects key concepts to indicate that loving one another is not something that is automatic to the new believer or is necessarily a trait of a new believer. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, he says, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. That's teleao, which means to be brought to completion or maturity. So he connects obedience to God's word, application of doctrine, to love for God, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love for God, personal love for God the Father, love for God, or excuse me, this should be taken as a subjective genitive, that is God's love being produced in the believer. Whoever keeps his word, whoever is consistent with God's word, in him God's love, that is the mirror of God's love produced by the fruit of the Spirit, God's love has truly been brought to completion so that the love that is in our life, the Christian love, is a mirror or reflection of the love that God has for us. And then he closes by saying, By this we know that we are in him. Notice I repunctuated the sentence on the overhead the way it should be. It is probably punctuated with a colon at the end of that sentence in your Bibles, indicating that verse 6 is uh, is the by this we know reference. But that's not correct. As I've said again and again, John has a unique style here. When he says, by this we know, if that phrase is followed by a subordinate clause of explanation where he says, because, or in that, or the following sentence can't stand on its own, then he's referring to something that comes after the by this, but verse 6 can stand on its own. If it's not followed by a dependent clause, then the by this refers back to what he just said. And so... Here he is making the point that when the love of God has been brought to completion or mature in a believer, then you know that you are what? In him, that is, abiding in him. Even though he doesn't use the word abide here, that is often what he is indicating, and abide is a key concept as we have studied. Then in 1 John 2.15 he states, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. And here we have our objective genitive, that is, a love for the Father. We will get to John's statement later in 1 John 5 that uh, we love him because he first loved us, and that's the doctrine of, of reciprocal love. Because God initiated love, we then in turn return that love toward him. And so it always begins with God's love for us and then our love back. We either love the world at any point in time or we're loving the Father, and love for the world is it is uh, hostility toward God. So it is a contrast between the believer who is still infatuated with temporal things and the cosmic system and cosmic priorities and the believer who is advancing in maturity and has doctrine as his highest priority, and has reached that point where he has a personal love for God the Father. Personal love for God the Father, as we shall see, must precede impersonal love for all mankind and impersonal love for other believers. 
Then John returned to the theme of love in 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. So he's going back now in chapter 3. He begins to build his momentum as he talks more and more about love. And he talks first about what God's love has done for us in terms of being called children of God. Then in verse 10, he begins to shift gears, and he states, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Again, that should not be a colon. That should be a period, and that ends the previous paragraph. Then we have the new paragraph. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And as I have pointed out in our study of God, does not refer to salvation, but refers to abiding in Christ or being in fellowship. So loving the your brother, see, obviously it's talking about in fellowship because an unbeliever can't love his his brother. I mean, his brother would be another unbeliever. We're talking about believer to believer here because of the phraseology of brother. So he begins to develop the theme of loving the believer's love for other believers and that this is evidence of abiding in Christ and growing and maturing in our spiritual life. Verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's the unique mandate for the church age from Jesus Christ in John 13, 34, and 35. Then we skip down to verse 14, and John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because, uh, we, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. That's the... That's carnal death. That's not spiritual death. Remember, there are seven different kinds of death in the Scripture. There is a physical death, sexual death, and the third category is carnal death. That is a believer who is living out of fellowship. And then in verse 16, we have the statement that tells us what love is. We know love by this, that he laid down his life as a substitute for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the starting point for understanding love is not personal experience or personal emotion. Too often what we find is that people want to think of love in terms of their own experience, in terms of sentimentality, in terms of some sort of superficial emotion or something along those lines. But love in the Scripture is completely different. Remember, love is not emotion. Love has to do with thinking. Love has to do with the mentality. Love is based on doctrine and the thinking of Christ. So we know love by this, by the cross. So the starting point for understanding love is what took place on the cross. Then we come to our study where we find ourselves down in chapter 4, verse 7. He returns to this theme of love. Let us love one another, for love is from the ultimate source of God. Therefore, that's an indication of the production of God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of the believer. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And we said last time that those are two distinct things. First of all, 
In order to reach that level of maturity where you are loving God, you first of all have to be born again. You have to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Every believer, every individual is born spiritually dead. That means they lack a human spirit. They can't understand the things of God and they can't have a relationship with God. But when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant, God the Holy Spirit regenerates you and creates and simultaneously imparts a human spirit. At that point, you have new life. God imputes to that human spirit eternal life. And at that point, you have the life of God. You also have, at the same time, imputed the righteousness of Christ so that you are declared to be justified. All of that happens at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, you have to be born of God. You have to be regenerate before you can have the kind of love that God has. You can't do it any other way. That doesn't mean that uh, if you don't have that love, you're not saved. But it's saying that only those who are saved can produce that kind of love, but not all those who are saved produce that kind of love because there are obviously those in the congregation who are not producing that kind of love. They are not loving their brother. If it was automatic that you would love their brother, there would be love your fellow believer, then there would be no need to command believers to do that. So there are two prerequisites for this kind of love. First of all, salvation, and then secondly, growth in a knowledge of God. Knowing God is not equivalent to salvation. We've seen our study from Philip in John chapter 14 that Philip was saved, but he didn't know Jesus Christ yet. Knowing God is a mark of spiritual advance and spiritual uh, maturity, and we can't love someone we don't know. And we can't love God unless we first know God, and you can't know anything about God so that you can love him until you've spent a tremendous amount of time in his word to study his word, study his mandates, and begin to apply those commandments in your own life. That's why John made the connection back in 1 John 2, 5, that the one who keeps his word loves him. So these things all uh, dovetail together. You have to study God's word. You have to make doctrine a priority in your life. And you have to start uh, uh, obeying God's word and applying it in your life if you're going to love him, because love is related to application of, of doctrine. You can see this in your own human experience. Most of you at one time or another fell in love with someone. And when you fell in love with that person, whether you were 17 or 27 or 70, when you fall in love with someone, you want to spend time with them, and you want to spend time doing the kinds of things that they enjoy doing. And we've all experienced that, that when we go through that romantic stage in a relationship, then we realize we begin to change some of our priorities. We change the way we schedule our life in order to fit with the person with, with whom we are in love, and we want to do things that they are pleased with, and we stop doing things that they aren't pleased with. And that's the point here, is that is that as we grow and come to understand who God is and what he wants from us, what he expects of us, what he likes, what he doesn't like, then we order our lives in such a way that we do things that please him and we don't do things that displease him. So we keep his commandments. Those who love God keep his commandments. 
keep his commandments. Loving God, therefore, is not a matter of emotion, but it is a matter of learning doctrine and applying it. That is the criteria. That's the barometer of personal love for God. So two things are important. First, regeneration. And secondly, spiritual advance through spiritual infancy so that we can learn about God and then love him. Then we come to verse 8. In verse 8, we read, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Notice he doesn't say, He who does not love is not born of God and does not know God. He simply says, He who does not love does not know God. He's still born of God, but he doesn't know God yet. He hasn't advanced in any stage of uh, spiritual maturity. And so what we understand from this is that personal love for God must precede impersonal love for believers. Before you can love one another, you have to first come to know God and to love God. That's what that is built on, because you can't love one another if you don't understand some profound things about the cross. For example, in 1 John 2.29, we Read, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also, who practices righteousness is born of God. Now this gets to another important issue here related to, uh, understanding the phraseology of verse 7. We have a phrase, if, uh, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. The phrase is born of him is based on a perfect Active, our perfect passive indicative of ganao. And the perfect tense here is an, is an extensive perfect which emphasizes the present reality of a past action. The person who practices righteousness has already, perfect tense, something happened in the past and we're emphasizing the present results. They practice righteousness because they've been born of him. And in 1 John 3, 9, we see a similar phrase, He who is born of God, um, no one who is born of God, perfect tense, present reality, practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Regeneration is the only basis for ever reaching a state where you can love God, practice righteousness, or not sin. But just because you're born of God doesn't mean these things are also true. Now, there are those who try to make an issue out of that, and they try to take it the other way and reverse the reverse the phrase and say, if you're born of God, you won't sin. If you're born of God, you love one another. And if you're, born, you're genuinely saved, you do righteousness. And therefore, if you don't do righteousness, if you sin, if you don't love, then you weren't really saved. And that is just a distortion of the passage, and that is not... Uh, what it is saying. Now in 1 John 4, 8, we have a profound statement related to the essence of God at the end of verse 8. We read, the one who does not love does not know God for, and we have a causal statement here, an explanation, because God is love. Now when we look at the essence of God, Put the essence box up here on the overhead. We look at the characteristics or attributes of God. 
First of all, God is sovereign. That means he is the ruler and the final authority of everything in human history. He is plus R. He is absolute, perfect righteousness. There is no sin in him. He is absolute justice. That means all of his decisions are fair because, as we'll see, God is omniscient. He knows all the facts. He doesn't need to learn any of the facts. Because he knows everything, every motivation, every fact, every detail, he always makes the correct decision. God is absolute love, and God is eternal life. He is also omniscient. He knows all the knowable, everything that could happen, everything that will happen. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is present to every part of his creation at every instant. He is immutable. He does not change. And he is veracity or truth. (coughs) Now, earlier in 1 John... John makes another statement about God. He says that God is light. And now in 1 John 4, 8, he says God is love. Light relates to the perfect holiness or integrity of God. His integrity emphasizes first his righteousness. God's righteousness is the standard of his character. God's justice is the application of that standard. So that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. All of this is motivated by the love of God expressed through the grace of God. But the scriptures link some one other attribute of God with his love. I mean with his with his righteousness and justice in terms of integrity and we see that in well I thought I had it in here, but I don't. We see that in Psalm 85.10 and Psalm 89.14. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, and let's look at these two passages. Psalm 85.10 first. It is always important that when you are building an understanding of any doctrine that you at some level, you're able to ground everything in a scripture. You know, it's real easy sometimes, and we see people do this far too frequently, is to start thinking abstractly. What I mean by this is that you start thinking independently of the scriptures. You look at something and you say, well, righteousness and justice, what can go with righteousness and justice? And then you, you're thinking logically, but you're not going to the scriptures for, for something. But the scriptures connect one other element of God's character with his righteousness, justice, and love. And we see this in these two passages in the Psalms. Psalm 85.10 we read, Mercy and truth. Now I'm reading from the New King James, and the word for mercy is actually hesed, God's faithful, loyal love. God's faithful, loyal love, or hesed, always relates to grace. 
Chesed is spelled, it's a, it's a hard H in Hebrew, more like a guttural C-H-E-S-E-D. Grace and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, that's grace. And our land will yield its increase, that's blessing. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. And then we turn over just a couple of pages to Psalm 89, verse 14. Psalm 89, verse 14, we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy, and once again, that's chesed, or God's faithful, loyal love, his, his love and his grace combined. And truth go before your face. So the one other attribute that we have that the scriptures connect with righteousness, justice, and love is God's truth, his veracity. So if we were to diagram this under the category of integrity, we see that within all of the attributes of God, there seem to be four that are under the spotlight here. His standard, that is the righteousness of God, and his justice, the application of that. His love, which motivates, and truth, which is the absolute of his thinking. He is absolute truth. He operates. His justice and righteousness always operate on the basis of his truth. This is always expressed then through his grace, which is unmerited favor toward his creatures. Grace itself is not an attribute of God, but is an expression of the integrity of God. What we often find, though, is people who want to create some sort of con- contrast or conflict between righteousness and love. How can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? We've all heard that sometimes. Well, I just don't believe in that kind of a God because a God who loves people won't send them to hell. The problem with that is that you're defining love on the basis of human sentiment and experience, and you're not defining love on the basis of God's word. The real question that needs to be answered is not how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire, but how can a righteous God let someone obnoxious like you or me into his heaven? See, the problem isn't love. The problem is righteousness. But his love as the motivation in his character provided a perfect solution through Jesus Christ on the cross so that God's righteousness and his justice could be satisfied. And once his character is satisfied by the perfect provision of Christ on the cross, then his love is going to be free to express itself through God's grace to creatures who do not merit who deserve, who do not merit his love. So creatures receive that unmerited love of God. So John is going to introduce the love of God here. He's already introduced the holiness and righteousness of God earlier in the epistle where he states that God is light back in 1 John 1, uh, 1, 4 and 5. 
And now he's going to add the concept of God's love. So let's turn back to our passage in 1 John chapter chapter 4. Verse 8, the one who does not love, the believer who has not advanced to spiritual maturity, has not understood uh, his own personal sense of eternal destiny yet, has not grown to the stage where he can either love God or love mankind. It's because he doesn't know enough doctrine yet and hasn't developed a personal relationship with God through abiding in Christ and walking by the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 9 we read, By this, once again, we have another by this statement. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Well, first of all, as I said, we have to decide what the by this refers to. Is it something in verse 8 or is it the second half of verse 9? Well, the second half of verse 9 is a causal clause uh, uh, it's an explanation that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. That can't stand as an independent sentence. It's an explanation. So when, once again, the principle is that when John uses the phrase by this and it's followed by a dependent clause, then the by this refers to what's in the dependent clause. By this, the love of God was manifested. And was manifested is a familiar word in the Greek. It is the aorist passive indicative of phanerao. That's the aorist passive indicative of phanerao. This is a word that has become a key word in this section of First John. P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. And it was first used in this section back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, where we read, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive... Oh, excuse me, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, that's phanerao, when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And again in... Um, verse 2, Behold, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed. That's phanerao again. It has not yet been manifest what we shall be, but we know that when he is manifest, phanerao again. So again and again, John uses these, these words to bring us back to his main theme. It's just like weaving a rope. He constantly brings one thread together to make us understand that he's continuing to talk about the same subject. And that's important. And, and many people who make comments on 1 John and preach through 1 John completely miss this, this thing in the English because uh, it, it, it doesn't come across in the English text and you're not as clear as to the fact that these are not different subjects, but he's weaving them together to make his case for what the mature spiritual life looks like. So he says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us, was revealed in us. How is God's love? And here the phrase love of God needs to be understood. The phrase comes out, is once again we see that word of, and as we saw in the first hour, that always indicates a genitive construction in the Greek. So we have the phrase, 
Agapeo for the verb, A-G-A-P-E-P-E-O, to Theu. The definite article to and the noun for God, Theu, the O-U, indicates a genitive. Now, this can be, this type of verb uh, or noun, Excuse me, not, it's not, I wrote it as a verb, it's agapas. The word love, the noun love, is what's called a noun of action. Agapas is a noun of action, which means it's a, it's a noun, but it describes an activity. Such as love, a faith can be uh, taken the same way, and there are many other words that describe an activity, but you have a noun. So when you have a noun of action... That noun can be love from God or love toward God. In this first case, love from God, then it is could also be said or translated as God's love. It is divine love. If it is love toward God, it is human love. Directed toward God, our personal love for God the Father. Now, every time you see a phrase like this, you have to make that decision. And as I said this morning, I just wish translators would be a little more specific. They learned this in second-year Greek, and I don't know why they don't apply it. By this, the, the love of God was manifested in us. It should have been translated. By this, God's love was manifested or revealed uh, in us. And then we have the understanding of it that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is the same kind of statement that was made back in 3.16. By this we know love because He laid down His life as a substitute for us. So God's love is manifested or revealed in us by what took place on the cross. God sent His only begotten Son into the world. Now, the word translated begotten, that's a funny word in the English, and a lot of people think of it in terms of birth. That begotten has something to do with birth and beginning. The Greek word is mono. Ganes. Mono means one, and ganes can come, there's arguments in the literature, it can come from the, the, from the word that in the Greek that we transliterate genus, you know, like a genus and species, and that indicates kind, or some, others want to argue that it has something to do with birth or derivation. Now, Jesus Christ is the Son of God eternally, because the phrase Son of God doesn't refer to being born. He didn't acquire His sonship at His birth. He is eternally the Son of God, because the phrase Son of God has to do with deity. The emphasis, it's a Jewish idiom, and it means deity. Same way in which Son of a fool means you're a fool. Son of a murderer means you're a murderer. Son of uh, deception means you're a deceiver. Son of God means you're God. Monogenes means kind, and the or genes emphasizes kind, and monogenes means one of a kind or unique one. Uh, 
birth is not a concept because Jesus Christ does not become deity at his incarnation. He is always deity. God sent his only unique son. He has always been the son. He was the son in the Old Testament. He was the son a billion years ago. God sent his unique son into the world so that or for the purpose that we might live through him. Now, this is not talking about eternal life in terms of the acquisition of life without end in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, I came to give life, that's eternal life at the point of salvation, and to give it abundantly. And we always have to distinguish whether the author is talking about the quality of the believer's life, uh, capacity to love, capacity for blessing, or whether he's simply talking about non-ending existence in heaven. First John 4, 9 is in the context of teaching on sanctification in phase 2. So the emphasis here, therefore, must be on the quality of life. God sent his only begotten son so that we might live, and that is have the full experience of the Christian life and divine blessing, live through him. Then we come to verse 10. And it begins in the English, in this is love. And I would challenge that translation because you have the same phraseology uh, that we have in uh, previously, and that is in tutu in the Greek, by this, and then it's like it's, a, it's ellipsized, but the idea is that by this we have love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And so the concept that John is making here is one he continues to say, uh, or make when he uses this phrase in tuto, is he is showing us how we know something by this or in this. Uh, in, in this demonst- and this is demonstrated love. He is giving an example of love. Not that we loved God, which would mean human initiation, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So I want you to notice how he ties this together. He said he's been talking about love. He says that God is love. Back in 1 John 1, 4, he talked about God being light. When you combine the light and the love of God, you're dealing with the integrity of God. The integrity of God is a problem for the uh, salvation of uh, the human race. And first of all, his integrity, specifically his righteousness and justice, has to be um, has to be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. And so he comes back once again to the doctrine of propitiation, which he had introduced in 1 John 2.2, where he stated that he himself, that is Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So this brings us to the doctrine of propitiation. First point is a definition. Propitiation is the Godward side of salvation. Redemption is manward. We are purchased from the slave market of sin. Uh, Expiation is manward. Our debt is paid. Justification is manward. We are justified. We receive the imputation of God's righteousness, and so he can declare us to be just. But uh, propitiation is 
toward God. It is God's character that's a problem. His righteousness will not allow him to have fellowship with the believer. What the righteousness of God condemn, uh, rejects, the justice of God condemns. And because of his righteousness and justice, God cannot have a relationship with us. So propitiation is the Godward side of salvation whereby God's holiness, that is, his righteousness and justice, is satisfied by Jesus Christ's payment for our sins on the cross. Propitiation means satisfaction. When you think of that word, uh, propitiation, you think of the word satisfaction. That's a good word for you to teach your, your kids. It'll probably show up on their SAT scores eventually, just be forewarned. One of the greatest examples of grace in my life was was when I was uh, uh, trying to figure out what to do with my life as a young man. I was teaching school and not happy doing it. And my mother kept saying, apply for Dallas Seminary. All they can say is no. And I said, well, you know, I partied too much when I was in college the first couple of years, and my grades just aren't what they should be. She kept saying, well, all they can say is no. So the first thing I had to do in my application process was to take the uh, GRE. And I had signed up just for out of boredom, I guess, wanting to do something. I had signed up for a graduate course in history. I always enjoyed World War II, and one of my favorite college professors was uh, teaching a course on uh, Germany in World War II. And he gave me a stack of books to read, about eight or nine books, and I started reading those books. And about every day I had to look up five or six words in those books. And I just kept a little notebook, and every time I'd have to look up a word, I wasn't preparing for anything. I just was trying to understand what this author said. Every time I would read, I'd write down a new word, and I would look it up in a dictionary. And uh, three or four weeks later, I was scheduled to take the GRE. I went into that GRE exam and... By the grace of God, 80% of those vocabulary words that I had to know on that exam, I had looked up within the previous three weeks. So, you know, it's important to learn vocabulary so that we can go on in terms of God's plan for our life. So propitiation, use that around the house. Whenever your kids do something that you approve of, say that your demands have been propitiated. And everybody will be impressed. So propitiation means satisfaction. It's the idea that God the Father is completely satisfied. His justice and his righteousness are completely satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, the word propitiation is a translation of the Greek word hilasterion. And it looks like this. It's rough breathing mark, H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. Hilasterion, which was used in the Septuagint to translate the name for the mercy seat on the Ark of the, of the Covenant. And it's used that way in Romans 3.25 and in Hebrews 9.5. And so this relates us to something we had studied a bit in the first hour, that is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant provides the Old Testament picture of the doctrine of propitiation. 
The Ark of the Covenant is a box that is made of acacia wood and covered with gold. The combination of wood and gold is a picture of the uh, hypostatic union. The wood represents the humanity of Christ. The gold represents his deity. And so the entire structure represents uh, the work of Christ. Inside the box, which is shaped like a casket, it was 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. Inside that box were three articles, according to Hebrews 9.4 and number 17.8. Hebrews 9.4 and number 17.8. There was manna, manna which represented the people's rejection of manna. They didn't like to eat the same thing all the time. And God provided manna for their sustenance while they were in the wilderness. And they rejected that. They wanted to go back to the good food of the leeks and garlics and, and Egypt. And, and, you know, my, my sin nature can relate to that. One of the things I enjoyed in the last trip to Houston was good Cajun food. We uh, introduced a few people in the church to good Cajun food, nice and spicy and on the way down there, uh, we had a friend who is from South Louisiana. For those of you who don't know, Cajun food is deep, deep bayou country in South Louisiana. We have a good friend in Houston who is from there. And uh, so we called her on our way down. She said, well, we're going through through uh, South Louisiana here. Where's a good place to get some good Cajun food? So she told us of a place, and it was right out, right on the Shafalaya Bayou. And we went out and sat on the open deck right over the water, and there were maybe 200 fish in the water. We kept throwing garlic bread to them. So I imagine those fish would probably taste pretty good after a while, eating all that garlic bread. And and we just had a great time. And they brought we got some. And Dan had not had any Cajun food before, so we ordered him a crawfish platter with crawfish etouffee and uh, crawfish gumbo and crawfish pie and all that fillet gumbo and all that good Cajun stuff. And uh, we got some uh, crawfish bisque, and it was the gumbo style, not the cream style. And I'm, that was hot enough to bring tears to my eyes. So sometimes. Um, up here where you don't get all that good spicy food, one misses the, uh, shall we say, the jalapenos and the hot stuff from Texas and Louisiana. So I can, uh, my sin nature can relate to them. They didn't, <clears throat> they got bored on the manna and wanted a little seasoning in their food, but that was a rejection of God's logistical grace. Then the second item inside the box was Aaron's rod. The reason it was there was because they had rejected Aaron's leadership. God demonstrated through a miracle by causing Aaron's rod, that is the dead stick, to sprout green leaves. Dead sticks don't sprout green leaves normally. But God performed that miracle to demonstrate that Aaron was his chosen representative. So Aaron's rod is in that box to demonstrate the sin of their rebellion against God's provision of leadership. And then there were the tablets of the Mosaic Law, which they had broken, indicating their transgression of divine law. So inside the box are three things which symbolize their rejection of God's provision, God's grace, and God's law, and all of which represented the sinfulness of the nation. On top of that box is laid a lid covered in gold called the mercy seat, And on that mercy seat are two angels representing God's holiness and his righteousness. The angels are cherubim, and cherubs represent God's righteousness and justice. Each year on the Day of Atonement, 
the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and place a bowl of blood from a lamb without spot or blemish onto the mercy seat and God's and the the uh, righteousness and justice would look at that blood covering the sin and they were satisfied and that is the picture of propitiation that the sin is covered by the blood and that satisfies the righteousness and justice of God. So that is the picture of propitiation is demonstrated in the Old Testament. Point number three, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was the portrayal of the entire picture of salvation from the standpoint of propitiation. When the animal blood was placed on the ark, it represented the spiritual death of Christ who bore our sins on the cross and the acceptance of that work by the integrity of God. Point number four, the result, resulting principle is that at the moment of salvation, or at the moment of Christ's death on the cross, the justice of God the Father is satisfied. But it is not until you trust in Christ as your Savior that that is applied individually to each believer. Because the justice of God and His righteousness are satisfied, it frees the love of God to then bless the believer. Point number five, propitiation, therefore, is related to the work of Christ on the cross in that His death uh, covered our sins and provides cleansing for sin. Recent studies in the Hebrew word of kafar, which is the word used to translate atonement, that in older studies, the idea was that kafar meant to cover. But recent studies indicate that it has, it is, in fact, it's translated most of the time in the, in the Septuagint with the Hebrew, I mean, with the Greek word katharizo, and it has to do with cleansing or purification. So that is a main idea is the the blood represents purification, and because purification has taken place, God's righteousness and justice are satisfied, and God is free to extend his love to the believer. Point number six, propitiation is appropriated by faith alone in Christ alone and is then the basis for the imputation of divine righteousness. So it's propitiation first, imputation of righteousness second, justification third. That's the order that is, uh, but in actuality they occur simultaneously. That's the logical order. And then point number seven, propitiation resolves the problem for every member of the human race, and that's First John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So First John, four ten, we learned the doctrine of propitiation. Then verse eleven, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The model, the standard for understanding what it is to love one another, is once again emphasized by John as being what Christ did on the cross. Only by concentrating and understanding what Christ did on the cross are we going to be able to understand what it means to love one another. At the cross, Jesus Christ did everything that was necessary for our salvation, not because we deserved it, 
not because we were good enough for it, but because he in his own character wanted to provide that salvation for us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word, to see this clear picture of salvation, especially as presented through the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. Help us to understand the doctrine of propitiation and how your justice and righteousness are satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. Father, we pray once again that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal salvation and uncertain of their where they will spend eternity, that they would take this time to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Trust in him alone for your salvation. As he provided the perfect sacrifice as a substitute for your sins on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today related to the impersonal love for all believers. Help us to apply them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.